Christmas, City Light Church. Merry Christmas. Go ahead and grab a seat. So good to be with you guys. This is one of the most joyful days on the calendar. This is the day when we celebrate that we have a God who's personal, who is alive, who loves us, who proved his love to come and be with us, to save and to rescue us. And uh, I feel like we've already had church. I've already sweated through my sweater with that song. And uh, I don't know if I got any gas left in the tank, but I want to preach. I want to welcome you here. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors of City Light. And this is a stunning moment. It's a moment when we pause and remember God came to our planet to rescue us. We have a personal God and a present God and a saving God and a living God and a God who came. And this is the very foundation of our hope. And it's my great joy to open the Bible with you this evening and to take a look at the very first Christmas uh, account as it comes to us out of the Gospel of Matthew. And so would you open the book, would you open your Bibles if you have it to the Gospel of Matthew? We'll be in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you didn't bring your Bible, don't be insecure. Uh, just uh, It'll be up on the screen so you can follow along that way. I want to walk you through the Christmas uh, account this evening, and I want to do it at a fairly pa- fast pace. I want to I want to take a look at the story that was just read uh, to us by the Hardesty family. And I want to go quickly through and look at some of the drama. How is it that God advented? How is it that he came? The, the Mary and Joseph story and the angels appearing. And then I want to slow down around 21, 22, 23, those verses. And, and I want to take just a moment and zoom in on what I think is the climax of this passage where God describes what Christmas is and what he's done for us. And I want to lay out three truths about Christmas that I want to shape our lives this year. And uh, now as we get into a very familiar text about Christmas, I want to slow down, I want to pause, and I want to recognize that some of you in this room have heard this story literally you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of times. You've read it, you've heard it read, you've heard it preached, you've heard it sung. This is a familiar story to many of you, and yet my prayer for you and my encouragement to you is that your heart would be soft and open in a fresh way to be shaped by this gospel story, to be shaped by this Christmas story, to know that this is a true story and a personal story, and it's your story and it's my story. And so I invite you, enter into this story. Don't gloss over. I know you've got presents and ham awaiting you, but slow your heart down. This is reality. Let this shape your heart, even as a Christian. And others of you have heard this story. You've sang the songs, but you've never really understood in a personal way what this story means what the good news of Christmas means and how it should shape your life in particular. And so I have prayed that God would enable me to preach this truth with such great clarity that it would elicit a response from everyone in the room. Uh, The Christmas story is an amazing story, and there's no way for a human heart with integrity to remain neutral about the Christmas story. Either this message is so absurd and obnoxious that you should loathe it and hate it and reject it, or this is the best news that you've ever heard and you should center your whole life around this gospel story. But there's no neutral. And so I'm praying, God, would you elicit a response in the hearts and minds that are here today. This story demands our response. And so let's let's take a look at our text this morning. If you've found your way there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we will start this way. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. We need to stop right there. I'm going to pause halfway through our first verse. 
We need to stop right there because we need to remember what verse 18 reminds us, which is that the Bible is a a, a historical account of historical things that actually happened. The Bible would say, this is how Jesus came. This is history. Unlike much of the major religions of the world and major philosophies and worldviews, Christianity is not based on, on the ideology of a particular thinker. It's not based on a particular religious tradition. It's not based on the moral teaching of a sage or a wise man. It's not based on religious folklore. It is about history and ultimate reality. The Bible would affirm, and we must either receive or reject, that the God who made the, made the world stepped down into the world. And what this teaches us is that the power behind the whole universe is not just some impersonal principle, but it's a real person who could be known and could be loved and could be killed. The history um, declares that Jesus is a man of history, a man of reality. The Bible doesn't leave any room to acknowledge that this is religious folklore or sentiment, but declares this is history. Verse 18, now this is the, this is, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Point B, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Bit of a history lesson. In our culture, we have dating, engagement, and marriage. And it goes in that order. In the day of Mary and Joseph, there was dating and engagement, and then there was what is called betrothal. Betrothal is more than engagement, and it's less than marriage. In the, in the status of betrothal, you are legally obligated to someone, but you have not yet consummated your marriage vows. It's right in between that time, and it's in this stage that Mary becomes pregnant. And in Luke's gospel, we hear the story of how this affects Mary, how an angel appeared to her to tell her about God's plan. That she is a virgin, and she will now give birth to a son, and that baby would come from the Holy Spirit. Now, get all the religious sentiment and fuzziness off and take this story at face value, what you're hearing. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. You're likely a young, maybe teenage, early high school years girl. You're in a highly religious culture in a very small town. You are not yet married, and you have just been told that you are pregnant. In a small town, I came from a small town. Any of you come from small towns? Everyone knows everyone's business in a small town, okay? We live in a culture that's a lot more accepting and open to varying ideas. This is not the culture that Mary grew up in. Everyone knew her business, and everyone knew that she was now pregnant and single. So imagine Mary. She now has to tell her parents, as well as her fiancé, I'm pregnant, but it's okay. I'm still a virgin. God put it in there. (laughs) Yeah, sure God put that in there. How many times has that story been told (laughs) over the last 2,000 years? But that's her story. She's she's facing the, the public shame and humiliation, the idea of disappointing the man that she loves. How can she explain to him she has been faithful and she has not betrayed him, and yet she is actually pregnant? Furthermore, she's now facing the reality of uh, and the pressure and responsibility of raising God. Okay? No pressure, right? Teenage girl, unwed, here, raise God as a baby. I'm 34, I'm married, and it is hard enough and enough pressure to raise three mortal human beings, okay? (laughs) This is Mary, raise God, no big deal. 
Now, I would love to go on and on about Mary, and next year I might go back into Luke 2 because I, I have discovered uh, that, that Mary is such a model of faith. She is not the object of our faith. She is not the object of our worship. But man, is she a model of faith. Man, does she show us how to worship. Should we not hold her up as a great example of how we ought to love and obey Jesus? And yet, Matthew's gospel, which I've chosen for this year, doesn't focus in on Mary. It actually focuses in on Joseph. And so now I want you to bring into your mind's eye Joseph. Flip the script, flip the story here. Imagine a scene wherein Mary tells Joseph that she's pregnant. Again, the, like, the two are likely in their teen years. See it as oldest as maybe in his early 20s, which would be customary for being betroth- uh, betrothed at that age. They're still anticipating their forthcoming wedding. They're from the same small town, which means these two have known each other likely their whole lives. These two likely have grown up together. They've been in the same Sunday school class or Saturday school class, as it were, in the Jewish tradition. They love each other. They've become close to best friends. Um, They're anticipating what is coming. And here it is. Mary's now pregnant. And Joseph knows for a fact that he hasn't been with Mary. How betrayed does Joseph feel in this moment? What's going through his head in this moment? I mean, how disappointing. The whole community is looking on. Everyone's waiting for for the wedding day. The invitations have maybe already been sent, sent out and the and the reception hall reserved and paid for. And everyone's waiting for this moment. And now he realizes there's no escaping this moment. Everyone's going to know. Mary said the baby's from the Holy Spirit. But again, yeah. Holy Spirit, sure. <laughs> Not only has his best friend and greatest love of his life betrayed him, but now his reputation in this small, rural, highly religious town has been tarnished. And the situation looks very difficult. But verse 19 says that rather than react... Rather than shame Mary, rather than have Mary punished according to Jewish law and tradition, which was available to him as an option at the time, he instead chooses to break off the wedding. Now look at verse 20. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So an angel appears to Joseph in a dream as he's pondering, what do I do? I'm going to divorce her quietly. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream. And by the way, we believe in angels. Angels are real. Angels are created beings just like you and I. But unlike you and I, they don't have a physical body. They're spiritual beings that God created to to worship and serve him. And, And they at times will come to the earth as messengers of God and his workers in the world. And this particular angel shows up to Joseph in a dream and and says, it's true. Joseph, the whole Holy Spirit, she's a virgin. This is true. It's a miracle. This baby is from God. Do not fear. Do not divorce her. Marry her. And so what is Joseph going to do? Here's what I want to do. I want to fast forward to the end of our passage. We're going to save 21 and 23 in this angel announcement, okay? I want to go to the end of the passage really quick and see Joseph's response to the angel. Look at verse 24. It says, When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What an example to all of us. Joseph, knowing full well that the rest of the world was not going to understand the scenario in this moment, they're not going to believe him. He chooses to honor Mary, obey the word of the Lord, and to marry his fiancée. 
For the rest of his life, his reputation will likely be on the line. He's like me, myself, and Irene. Remember Jim Carrey in that movie, 2000? He's got the kids. Everyone knows the kids aren't his. He's the laughing stock of his own community. But he says, you know what? I've given the Lord my life. I'm going to give him my reputation as well. And because of it, he gets to become the adopted father of Jesus Christ. City Light, the primary character of Christmas is Jesus. But I think we learned something from Jesus or from Joseph here that I want to apply. Here it is. Write this down, if you will. Joseph shows us that trusting and obeying God will always cost us, but it's always worth it. you believe that? Trusting and obeying God will always cost you something, but it is always worth it. His life is not going to make sense to his friends and his family. He will be the butt of jokes. His reputation will be tarnished. It will affect his business and his income and all of that. And yet he gets the great joy and privilege of being the adopted father of Jesus Christ. How amazing. And don't we live with the same tensions? If you bowed your, name, your knee to Jesus, don't you face those same tensions every day? Young people, if you choose to obey what God says about sexuality, are you not mocked in our culture? Does obedience not cost you something? Some reputation? If you stand up to your professor about your faith in Jesus, will he or she not belittle you? Will they not call you narrow-minded and dumb? I've been there. <laughs> If you leverage all you have to to care for the poor and to give your life away, will not the culture look on and call you a fool? But let Joseph's life be an encouragement to all of us, church. If you are obeying Jesus and if it is costing you something, then rejoice because it's evidence that God is working in your life. Obeying God will always cost you something, but it's always worth it. Now, All of that was by way of a really long introduction to what I think now is the climax of this story that comes to us in the Gospel of Matthew. See, Joseph and Mary and the angels, they're all supporting characters in the plot of the Christmas story, but Jesus gets the lead role. He is the center of human history. He is the the very centerpiece of all of uh, uh, creation, and he is the very centerpiece of Christmas And I want to focus now on the epicenter of the Christmas story in Matthew, which I believe comes in verses 21 through 23, when the angel announces the reason for Jesus' coming. Why? Why Joseph and Mary and the dream and the virgin birth? Why does he come? Well, the angel tells us with no uncertain terms. Verses 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here it is. Here's the climax and center. Here's the punchline. This is the announcement to end all announcements that Emmanuel has come, God with us. God has left heaven and come to earth. Every other religion, every other philosophy primarily tells us how to ascend to God. Essentially, in one way or another, how to work our way to a better situation, whether that's heaven or nirvana or reincarnation or even the secular ideas of enlightenment, self-actualization, and complete independence and autonomy. It's about getting yourself to a better place by following the rules that get you there. It's the paradigm And the MO of every other major religion and philosophy and way that you can live your life, even in secular, um, atheistic independence. 
But Christianity is the one that stands in complete, antithetical, categorically different place on its own. Christianity is in every way different. It's not about getting our way to a better place. It's about a God who came down to better our situation on our behalf. Christianity is not primarily instructions for right living. It's the declaration and trust in God's accomplishments on our behalf. Christianity and Christmas isn't God barking down orders from heaven, telling us how we can ascend to a better place, how we can live life on a higher level. It's God coming down, Emmanuel, why? To save us from our sins. He comes and saves us. He comes and does what we could never do for ourselves. I listened to a podcast a while back on this podcast called The Art of Manliness, and it has maybe shaped my parenting for the worse or better. Uh, no one call CPA, but here's what, here's what I listened to. It's this podcast about a guy who lives in rural Pennsylvania. He and his wife are very educated, um, and, and yet they believe that one of the best ways to educate their children is by spending time outdoors and letting their young boys play with dangerous objects. And so... Uh, all the kids are issued a knife at a very young age. They all learn how to play with fire and start fire and mend wounds. And, uh, you know, they're kind of these savage children. And, and yet they have this whole philosophy uh, about how that really creates a better person, more resourceful and all of that. And so uh, despite my, my wife's better judgment, I have implemented this to some certain degrees with our children. And so uh, my sons have knives and bows and arrows and BB guns. And, you know, uh, they're better at starting fires than I am and all that. And uh, a couple hours earlier this week, um, I'm in our backyard, and uh, near our home is this kind of ravine that's pretty steep. And I'm out working in the backyard, and the boys are with me, and, and uh, Grady, my oldest son, goes down into this ravine. Now, you can't go down at our house because it's a 30-foot cliff, and it's just it's vertical. But if you go to the north a little bit, you go down the neighbor's way, and it's a little bit more approachable. And so Grady goes down, and then there goes Levi. He's three. He follows my my other son down there. And I'm doing my stuff in the backyard, and, and my small children are playing, you know, Austin Steve Clips by themselves because uh, education people is creating a better human. <clears throat> and after a few minutes, it's been quiet, and so I come over and crest the top of the hill and look down at the ravine, and I see my three-year-old son has come down the ravine back to where it's steep. He's decided to ascend back into his backyard when he recognized where he was. He got halfway up the cliff, the steep cliff, uh, grabbed onto a tree branch, and now he's frozen. He's realized he thought he could work his way up, and yet he can, and he's too petrified to go back down. And so there he is, screaming on the side of the cliff, holding onto a tree branch. Actually, it was a tree root. He's holding on a root, tells you how steep it is, coming outside of the side of the cliff. Now, as I saw my son there in desperation, two thoughts really grabbed me. Number one, my wife is going to murder me in the face if something happens to my son. She, this is just not okay. And the second thought that hit me is, if I don't go down and help him, this story does not end well. And so what did I do? I jumped off the cliff. It was kind of controlled falling from tree to tree, and I made my way down and grabbed the tree and got my son, and we made our way down and reascended in appropriate, more safe fashion, and I, I got him to safety. Now, what I didn't do with my son is haul her down some good instructions, right? Levi, go ahead and put your right foot where your left hand is and go ahead and step up on that. There you go. Now leap to the next branch. Keep working, son. Dig your hands into the mud. You're going to get there. No, 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 no. Why? 
My son didn't need good instructions. He was helpless to save himself. What did he need? He needed me to come down. He needed me to come down. He didn't need a lecture on how he broke the rules and he wasn't supposed to do that. He didn't need instructions for how to get himself in a better place. He needed someone to come down and rescue him. And that's what Matthew 1 says God did. It's Emmanuel. God with us. Why did Jesus come down? Not to make us better people, not to make us a little more religious, not to make us a little more moral, but to save us. Nothing less than God himself descending could save us in that moment. Now, from these last few verses, I want to share with you briefly three truths from this passage that it teaches us about Christmas. And with these truths, I want to be crystal clear why Christmas is so important. I want to slow down and I want to show you what Christmas teaches us about our nature, about God's character, and about how God works in our world. How does God save us? What is God doing? What is Christmas about? Here's the first truth. This would be kind of note-taking stuff if you're if you're uh, one of those people. Here we go. First one, Christmas is a humbling indictment. First truth we learn about Christmas, it is a humbling indictment. Look at verse 21. What's it say? She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. This is the reason why Jesus came, to save sinners, to save his people from their sins. Now, Now, Christmas is you know, it's the most joyful holiday of the year. We sing songs. We got trees and, and, and a raccoon over here. I don't know why there's a raccoon, but it's Christmas at City Light and plants and lights and, 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 and gifts. And it's such a celebration. But if you really take it at face value, man, Christmas is one of the most humbling and humiliating uh, indictments on mankind ever. Why? It says we're, we're sinners. We need saving. It says something about the human condition that's not so joyful and happy, that doesn't make you want to put lights on a tree. What it says is that we have to face the fact that our primary problem in this world is not out there somewhere. The primary brokenness in the world is is not external forces and, and, and ISIS and the bad guys and the evil. And we have to face the fact that I'm not primarily a victim of sin and evil and injustice. The primary problem of the world is the very beast that lives inside of my own chest called sin. And it tells us that I'm a sinner and that we are sinners and that, and that we cannot save ourselves like Levi on the face of a cliff living in complete um, panic and inability to save himself. We have got ourselves in our own predicament. We can't point fingers and blame other people. We can't blame the system. We can't blame other people. We can't blame our absent father. We can't blame what this person did to us. The problem is in here. Each one of us is sinful and sin-filled. And the Bible says these are sins of rebellion when we live in complete and utter disregard of God and his laws. It also says that these are sins of religion when we think that we can live rightly and morally so as to earn God's pleasure and favor. It's called self-righteousness and self-reliance and self-independence. And God says it's all sin. All of us, the good guy and the bad guy, the guy in jail and the cop, the blue collar and the white collar, the rich and the poor, all of us are a basket of deplorables. (laughs) Hashtag 2016 vocabulary. We're in a dark place and we're all included. Additionally, Christmas teaches us the depth of our need. Not only that we're sinners, but it says that God himself had to come and save us. That's great news, which we're going to get to, but first is bad news. That means our condition, apart from the grace of God, is so bad 
that morality can't save us, right living can't save us, being more devout can't save us, doing more, trying hard, attending church more, kicking a few bad habits, trying to give back a little bit. None of that can save us. Our condition is so bleak that only a divine rescue can do. We need God to save us. And so number one, Christmas is a humbling indictment on you and on me and on all of humanity. But here's the second truth of Christmas. Christmas is an exhilarating encouragement. Christmas is an exhilarating encouragement. The bad news is that our problem is way worse than we ever imagined, but the good news is that God's saving love is way greater than we could have ever imagined. What what does Christmas teach us about God's love? What does Christmas teach us about the value that he has placed on you and on me and on all of humanity? My wife buys and sells vintage clothes online. She goes to estate sales, and, and uh, she buys clothes that are just weird. They smell like mothballs and old lady perfumes, and she'll spend like a buck on a dress, and she wants to put it in our house. And I don't like mothballs and old lady perfume, and so I loathe when these objects come into our house. And yet, she lists them on Etsy, and it's amazing what people will spend on old junk. Now, this last week, she brought in some shoes uh, that were just horrific. I don't want these in my house. She lists them, on, lists them on Etsy. Some lady in France bought them for 100 bucks. I thought, what? Here's what that's shown me. Val, this, is, this is a principle of economics, by the way. The value of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. I had no value of those shoes, and yet someone is willing to pay $100 for them. Well, I guess they're a $100 pair of shoes. So what does Christmas tell you about the value that God has placed on you? Well, what was he willing to spend for you? He sends his only son. And he gives him not as a moral teacher, primarily. Not as a model for us and how we should live our lives, primarily. What does verse 21 say? You shall name his, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He sends him as a sacrifice, as a savior. He sends Jesus to come and rescue you. How much does God love you? Is that not an exhilarating encouragement? What is that? If you have ever doubted your value before God, if you have ever doubted how he feels about you, if you've ever doubted if you've gone too far, done too much, or sinned too much, look at Christmas. He came to buy you back. That is your value before God. When I saw my son on the cliff, I did not think twice to to jump down, you know, risk injury to myself to save my son because I loved him. When God saw you on the side of a cliff, of your own sin, he wasted no time to jump into the abyss and to rescue you. That's the good news of Christmas. He saw your position and he ran after you. To leave heaven and come to earth, to step out of eternity, to step into space and time, knowing full well that he would be crucified by the very hands that he made. Do you believe this? Again, I want to pause just a second because we're in church and, you know, All this sounds familiar, but honestly, come here. In your heart of hearts, do you believe that that's the way God feels about you? Do you know what he's done for you? Have you taken it in? Have you taken it to heart? If you really come to grips with this in your life, it will change absolutely everything about you. And I want to invite you, if you have not received this, would you do so today? Why are you here in this room? God brought you here by providence, not circumstance or happenstance, but providence. He brought you here that you might know the gift that he has given to you on this Christmas, his love for you. Would you trust Jesus, give your life to Jesus, receive the gift of Jesus this Christmas, I beg you. I want to point out one more truth before we end. 
Here's the last truth that we learned from this text about Christmas, and I, I think it's a little less obvious than the others, but equally applicable. Here's the last truth. Christmas is proof that God keeps his promises. Christmas is truth that God keeps his promises. Look again at verse 22. Verse 22 says, And all this took place, why? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes out of Isaiah. For those of you who are new to this Bible, this is a, this is a library. This is 66 books written by some 40 different authors over a couple, few thousand different years. And the majority of this book was written before Jesus Christ came to the earth. We call it our Old Testament. And at the time that the Old Testament was written, some 25% of it was prophetic in nature, meaning that it was predictive of things that God was going to do in the future. The most paramount and pinnacle of these is, is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and to reign and to save and to set up his kingdom. In the very you know, first half of, of Genesis chapter 1 that we didn't read, 1 through 17, is a genealogy of some 14 different generations, all the way, more than that, all the way back to Abraham, some, you know, thousands of years before Jesus ever came, reminding us that for for generations and generations, the people of God have been awaiting this moment. It actually goes further back than that. If you were with us earlier in the year when we studied Genesis, remember chapter 3 and 15 is the first prophetic um, 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 good news gospel that we find, Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel where right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God comes and he tells the serpent, there will be a, a son born of this woman and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. From the very beginning, God has been promising, I will come. And I will deal with evil, and I will deal with sin, and I will defeat my enemies. And yet for years, generations, thousands of years, the people of God waited, and they wondered. And this promise was a long time coming. Even in our text, it quotes uh, the prophet Isaiah, some 700 years prior, saying that there will be a baby born of a virgin, and yet 700 years come and go. The promise was a long time coming. And as these people waited... There were all kinds of disappointments and frustrations and setbacks. Just read the Old Testament. But in all of those moments, God was setting the stage for this moment. And at Christmas, in Matthew 1, we see that God fulfilled his promise. Christmas is proof that God keeps his promises. And the Christmas story is a picture, I would propose, of our own stories. God has promised peace on earth. He's promised to bring justice. He's promised to heal every disease. He's promised to make right everything that has gone wrong. And yet, we wait, don't we? Some of you are waiting for God to fix your marriage. Some of you are waiting for your rebellious kids to change. Some of you are waiting for God to free you from that addiction. Some of you are waiting for God to mend those broken relationships. And we're waiting. And the question is, God, what are you waiting for? But here's what Christmas teaches us. God doesn't work according to our calendars and expectations. He may appear to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting his promises, but the baby in the manger teaches us that God keeps all of his promises, and when he does, they they blow outside the bounds of our own expectations. 
There will be a day when all things are made right in this world. There will be a day when we are all made whole again. There will be a day when the drama will be squashed, when sin and evil are no more, when the sick will be healed and the forgotten will be remembered once again because Jesus has promised that he will come back and he will right all the wrongs and he will reign with justice. That's the promise of Scripture. And we know that that is going to happen. And in the meantime, we wait. Just as the old the people in the Old Testament awaited Jesus' first, first coming, we wait, and yet we hold fast to the proof of Christmas. Proof that Christmas gives us that God keeps his promises, and that at Christmas time he has made good on his promise to come and save us from our sin, so that we can know God, we can worship God, we can be with God forever when we bow our knee to Jesus and trust him with our whole heart and our whole lives. I want to end with this. For those of you who have trusted Jesus and are walking with Jesus, here's a, here's a few bits of application for us to take home this Christmas. Number one, if Christmas really is this humbling indictment on all of us, there should be no room for pride or arrogance in the Christian life. Amen? Amen. A cocky Christian ought to be an oxymoron. <laughs> you, you think about what Christmas says about our condition. It says that I was helplessly dead in my own sin on the side of a cliff, unable to save myself. Little room for bragging in that. Christians ought to be the most humble people in all the earth. And yet, because of Christmas, there is no room for insecurity or discouragement. Do you realize how loved you are by God? There is no, listen to me, there is no room in your life for insecurity or discouragement. You have no reason to ever feel unloved. When you really come to grips with how much God loves you, it will change you. And nothing in this world can rob you of joy. Nothing. This morning I sat uh, next to a dear Christian friend, a, a woman from our church who's dying. And uh, her days are limited. I'll probably preach her funeral here in the next few days or, or next week or so. We sat in the hospital and I preached my sermon. I practiced on her. And we read Matthew 1 and we prayed and we held hands and we told stories and the family was there. And kind of at the end of our time together, we sang joy to the world. And I'm watching this woman's eyes fill up with tears, but they're not tears of regret. They're not tears of remorse. There's no bitterness in this woman's heart. There is nothing but joy. And I'm just taking in the paradox of this moment. Her body is betraying her. (laughs) The wages of sin is death, and we all have an expiration date. We will all be in that very moment. How humbling to know. We will all be in that deathbed. And yet, as her body betrays her, her soul is alive and well. I'm watching her pray for her grandchildren. I'm watching her witness to the nurses and the doctors. And I'm watching a joy in her heart that transcends anything in this world. And so, Christian, moments like that just put things in perspective. Listen to me. There is no room for discouragement. There is no room in your life for insecurity. You are loved by God. And so be humble, but be happy. Christmas means we can have a joy that this world and this life cannot touch. And finally, listen to this. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, man, would you give your life to Christ? This world promises you a lot of things. It's all lying. Money won't satisfy you. Your career will not fulfill you. Your body and health and fitness and looks will all disappoint you. There's an expiration date on all of our lives, but there is one gift at Christmas that transcends it all. It's Jesus Christ. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's available to you tonight.
And I've prayed this week that this wouldn't be just another, you know, neat moment. Gavin put on a sweater and you got dressed up and we had some candles. No, this is life and death and heaven and hell, and this is real. And eternity is on the line. And I want to plead with you. I don't want to make an emotional appeal. We're not going to, you know, bring up the keys and the whole deal and have you walk up. I just, in the stillness of your heart, if God is calling you to be a Christian, to surrender your whole life to him and his lordship, to receive his forgiveness, don't harden your heart. But would you trust Jesus? Let's pray together. Jesus, what a thought. You are the God of heaven. You are the God of eternity. You were there in the beginning. And we were dead in our sin. And you looked down and you saw your creation. You saw your image bearers whom you loved. And you jumped off the cliff for us. What a truth. God, I pray that this Christmas uh, we would take that in. For the Christians in the room, oh God, make us humble. <laughs> it's a humbling place to be to say, I was unable to remedy my own situation. I'm not religious. I'm not moral. I'm not good. I am a sinner in need of grace. And oh, would you make us happy. Would you make us genuinely happy? Would you make us joyful in Jesus this Christmas to know that it's not about the ham and the lights and the presents, but Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, who came to save sinners. And now, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you stir in hearts, even in this moment, if there's anyone in here who's questioned your reality, who has questioned your goodness, who's questioned your particular love for them, in the quietness of this room, would you soften their heart to receive you now? To pray along with me, Jesus, I am a sinner. I have missed the mark. I have not earned it. And without your grace, I'm in a hot mess of death and judgment for eternity. And yet I believe that you came to rescue me, to save me from my sins. And in this moment, I now receive you. I receive the greatest gift of Christmas. Oh, Lord, fill my life more of you, less of me. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your joy. Would you make me a new creation now? And now, Lord, as we sing and celebrate, would this be more than Christmas hype, but would this be a holy moment, a spiritual moment where we rejoice with the angels in heaven that, God, you have come to save sinners and you are saving sinners and you are glorious and you are alive and you are reigning and you are worthy of our worship. And so now, Lord, would we respond with gladness and joy and worship with all of our heart and all of our bodies and all of our being. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.